Hello, and welcome to Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today as our guest, we have Lyra. Lyra, she, they, is a PhD student in Sydney, Australia, and is researching emerging quantum technologies. Quantum physics describes the smallest and most delicate systems in the universe, and as our understanding grows, we can use these same systems to create new technologies that push the boundaries of sensitivity and accuracy to their limits. Lyra is also passionate about science communication and diversity and wants to see quantum be more wondrous and welcoming than intimidating. Lyra, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. So generally, to begin with, we like to ask our guests, how did you get started in science? How did you get interested in science? I've always been fascinated by how things work. I I think as a child, I would spend a lot of time whenever there was like stuff to pull apart or figure out how it worked. I love kind of just getting in there and trying to figure it out and playing with the electronics and stuff. And I think that kind of impulse was there from the very beginning. But I've always wanted to go into some kind of field like that. But when I first started off at university, I was about 50-50 whether I was going to go into linguistics or physics. And it just kind of physics ended up winning out a little bit. And then the more I did, the more I fell in love with it. And I wanted to go into research because, I don't know, I, I guess an altruistic sense of wanting to try and make the world a better place. And even if it's just contributing a tiny bit of knowledge to one specific field, but it increases what we know about the universe, and that makes us better. That seems like a great motivation to me. In physics itself, so you study quantum physics. How did you go towards that path? I think it's always been the most kind of engaging to me. I, th- I think my interest in wanting to know about how the world around me works has always been kind of focused on kind of like going inwards more as opposed to kind of like looking out towards the universe. I, I see something... And I want to know internally what's making this work and kind of dive down into it that way. So as kind of I was going through physics undergrad and learning about atomic physics and this kind of thing, it just kind of, I kind of naturally started doing more of the quantum kind of atomic kind of units and less of the astronomy and astrophysics units. And I think just people talk about quantum physics being a very beautiful theoretical framework to describe the world in, which is true, but I've never been fantastic at maths, but there always has been a certain appeal about how the way that quantum physics works, it's such a relatively simple framework that describes so many different systems. And this is kind of why quantum computing is such a big thing is because you can have all different kinds of systems that work in completely different ways, but because they have exactly the same maths, which underlies their structure, you can use them for the same thing. And that kind of universality and how it underpins everything we see around us in every direction. I think that's always been something very compelling to try and understand how, in the very smallest ways, how everything around us is put together. I think quantum physics is probably one of those disciplines that people have an idea of what it is, but maybe don't know precisely sort of the disciplinary parameters of it. So could you give sort of just a total beginner's guide to what is quantum physics actually so quantum physics is about like i kind of said in the bio in the beginning was about the smallest and most sensitive systems in the world but it's it's really the theories that describe everything when they are very isolated and well insulated from 
the outside world. So if you can get a single atom and not have it interacting with anything and it's in a vacuum, then quantum physics is the theory which describes how that works. If you have something which is really close to absolute zero, then it's got very little thermal energy. And then quantum physics, you would use that to describe that as well, because it's it's all about things when very cold or when they're very sensitive or when it's individual things by themselves. And it's when we start kind of adding lots of these together and they get like noisy and warm and hot that kind of more classical physics kind of takes over. But it's about single atoms or things that are really close to absolute zero and lots of different things in different areas of physics. But that those kind of situations are when you would see quantum physics coming up. Not to be too harsh right out the gate, but <laughs> just the way you're talking about it really does remind me of the way that biologists sometimes like to dunk on physicists of sort of my discipline can actually describe real material phenomena in the world that yours is only dealing with theoretically, like, <laughs> you know, kind of pl just playground teasing. Just Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> it's very easy to see how it kind of looks that way from the outside, especially when you try and talk about it in broad strokes like this. I guess it's probably a lot better to give kind of like examples so you can see the ways that this kind of is applicable for a lot of things. So one of the big places that everyone kind of knows that uses quantum physics is the gravitational wave detector, LIGO. They use a lot of knowledge about quantum physics and how we can manipulate that to be able to have the sensitivity of LIGO be enough to actually detect the things that we've been detecting without understanding how the quantum theory of light works we wouldn't be able to detect the gravitational waves that we've been detecting. The other kind of thing, so my research in particular, it's to do with diamond, and you can have kind of defect centers in diamond. So you just have something in the diamond which isn't carbon, and then because that's kind of really well insulated by being in the middle of a diamond, like nothing can touch it really, then that has really nice kind of electronic properties. So we use our quantum physics to describe the way that these defect centers in diamond work and that allows us to build stuff like high accuracy clocks and magnetic field sensors and do a lot of things like that. Well, as you introduced, could we actually get more specifically into what your research is, what you're working on? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So like I was just kind of saying, it's to do with defect centers in diamond and the particular ones that I work with are called nitrogen vacancy centers. So in like Diamond is a crystal lattice in that, like, there's just a periodic pattern in which the carbon atoms are bound together. But if you replace one of those carbon atoms with a nitrogen atom, and then you get rid of one of the atoms, so there's just like a hole where there should be an atom, but there isn't, then that has this really nice electronic structure, which kind of mimics the behavior of a single atom in that it's got kind of different well-defined energy levels, and then there's mechanisms that we can use to manipulate the electronic structure. Is this making much sense, though? Like, I'm, I'm not I sure. I think, so. let me try to, to rephrase. So basically, diamonds are well known as being a girl's best friend, first of all. <laughs> Secondly, they their value, the value that we've attached to them both, well, the, the functional value that they have is really in how they are a very rigid hard crystalline structure like it's very well ordered there's kind of no chaos happening there yeah although i realize chaos has probably a very particular meaning in physics outside of 
vernacular colloquial use, but let's go with it. And so if there are these different elements, for example, nitrogen that gets into that structure, is it that how well structured, how rigidly structured the diamond is, it kind of creates this kind of environmental insulation around that other element? Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's exactly what's happening. Yeah. The nine- Take that, my, my regular underperformance in physics in high school. <laughs> yeah, so, so it basically means it's, it's like an atom, but we can pick up that atom and move it around and like we can hold it in our hands and it's not going to interact with the atom. So, so, so it is kind of like taking the sort of vacuum of real space that is the theoretical basis of a lot of problems in physics and then finding an actual like real life example of we did it. We found it. Yeah. So, yeah. In an ideal situation, if you want to describe how an atom works, it's well, it's in a vacuum. There's nothing else around. It's at zero temperature and there's no light shining on it. And like, you're never going to see that in real life, but by having this very ordered symmetric structure around it, you can have pretty much the same thing if you design it right. Yeah. I have what may be in, we'll see how this question goes, but basically it, the way that we, the biologists love to dunk on physics is, you know, this very, so much of people say how it behaves in a vacuum and then it turns out you you can't actually observe things in a vacuum so how do how do physicists make basically how would you know how something would act in an environment that you can never observe and also could not physically exist does that make sense yeah that makes sense it works because of the theories that we use to describe it. And then that allows us to make predictions about how the system would work in less than ideal circumstances. So a lot of the theories start from a point of view, it's in a vacuum and there's nothing touching it or interacting with it. And no, we we can never do that. But if we add one more layer onto our theory of saying, well, this system, how would it interact with this particular framework of things? And then we design that little bit of extra theory that we're adding on to it to reflect a real-world scenario in which we could actually interact with this thing. And then we are able to make observations with that and experimentally explore what happens with that system in this particular framework. And then the way that these th- theories in physics kind of work, if the underlying theory uh, doesn't work or doesn't work in a particular way, then we're not going to have results that agree with our more complicated theory. So even if we can't directly say that we have observed this particular thing, by adding a bit more to our theory and applying it in a particular context, we can make observations, and that means that the whole thing is sound. And it's not that simple because you have to be very careful about how you construct the theories to make sure that like, you're not accidentally coming up with something which makes it look like it's working, but it's actually not. But... It's kind of through systems like that. We can infer something about the underlying theory by applying it to a situation where we can actually look at everything properly. I, I'm always awed when I read back into history of science. The, the things that I know about like foundational experimental studies in, well, post-Newtonian physics, like 
the you know the determination of what electrons are i'm always amazed that people were able to get to that point because the other thing about physics that always throws me for a loop particularly as you know an entomologist as a biologist i can hold an insect in my hand and go look at that you you can't hold an electron or rather you're constantly holding many electrons but you it's not like you can yet <laughs> it's not an insect is what i'm saying no it, it's not but this is something that kind of like you start exploring if you do kind of like undergraduate physics and maybe in your like second and third year. You can't pick up and hold an electron or directly see a photon, but you can do things with them which make their presence incredibly obvious. And so like even in first year physics, you will do kind of like interference experiments where you kind of interfere light with itself and then you have this pattern showing up and it's like that could only happen if light is acting as a wave and you can see it right there you can see very clearly this interference pattern showing up on this screen and it's just in a first year laboratory and stuff like electrons as well we can't ever pick one up and see it directly but we can design a detector which only kind of detects when an electron hits it and then we can have like an electron gun and we can point it at the detector and then suddenly we're seeing all these like little spikes of detection coming up on our screen and so it's like we know that electrons are there because we've designed this thing and we know it very well that it will only interact with electrons and we can see interference patterns with electrons as well. Physics is very different from a lot of other sciences and it's it's all about inference and being able to draw conclusions from, well, we're seeing this and that means these things about the underlying way that it's working. So would it perhaps be accurate to say that initially the electron was kind of a theoretical construct? There's the observation of a phenomenon and then there is the theoretical presentation of a concept that might describe that phenomenon and then experimentation to specifically isolate and identify what that influencing object is. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that that's exactly how it goes. It, it's yes. kind of like, it's the same process that we have with like the Higgs boson and stuff. We have this theory about how this thing works, but we're not really sure exactly what's going on or what particles are involved. Uh, and then someone proposes a theory and they're like, well, maybe it's this Higgs boson thing that is doing this. And then we don't really know. And then we come up with some experiment which is designed to test that particular theory of the Higgs boson. And then we find out that it's real. And like exactly the same thing happened with electrons. We could see that if we connected up some particular chemicals and stacked them together, then you would have some kind of something flowing through these metal cables that is making something shine or heat up or move. And we don't really have any idea what's going on. And when like the theory of kind of like electrons and electricity was being created, there were countless different people who were probably working on this and trying to come up with a theoretical framework that properly described what we're seeing. And then we only know about the one that succeeded because it was the one that succeeded. But every time in physics, that's the way that it works. It's There's a phenomena and 
we want to describe how it works and we go around searching for a theoretical framework and we test all of those and then eventually, hopefully, we find the one that works. I think maybe an example from biology that might make sense to people is that when Darwin was working, for instance, when there was a lot of this conversation about what was driving evolutionary change, there was the acknowledgement that there was something in organisms that led to the inheritance of traits, but they didn't know what that thing was. So it was the sort of the idea of the unit of inheritance, like the thing that caused inheritance of traits was purely theoretical until we got into the 20th century and we identified genes and DNA. And then we were able to attach the, you know, the physical thing that caused inheritance backwards to our understanding that inheritance was happening. Do you think that's a good comp comparison? Yeah, I, I think it is. That fits nicely. Yeah. I'm batting a thousand today. So going back to your own specific research, working on these diamonds, like what is this connecting to in general to ongoing problems in physics? So the area of physics I'm in, it's not necessarily pure research. It's so a lot of the fundamental stuff about quantum physics is kind of like settled now. We we have our theories which describe most of the stuff we see around us and there's obviously areas that need work done on them. But a lot of it now is, I mean, everyone knows about the enormous amount of buzz around quantum computing and that kind of thing. Well, um, actually. Yeah, people may have heard of that term, but they may not really understand what it is. Yeah, yeah. that is something I kind of wanted to try and talk about a bit as well because... It is the thing that gets the most buzz and the most hype, and it's the kind of thing everyone only ever hears about this and doesn't hear about anything else. Quantum computing is one example of a quantum technology where we're now using our understanding of quantum physics to build new technologies. And so my particular research using these diamonds and these nitrogen vacancy centers, uh, what we're doing with this is we're using it to build high accuracy clocks so the kinds of clocks that would be used in GPS satellites where you have to worry about relativistic effects. At the moment, the kinds of clocks that they use are like incredibly big and bulky and expensive. Uh, but these systems that we can make with these nitrogen vacancy centers potentially can be just as accurate, but at an order of mag orders of magnitude cheaper and smaller, which would potentially allow us to have kind of like GPS accurate clocks on small satellites or CubeSats and that kind of thing. I just want to point out to our audience that the reason GPS satellites need those very accurate clocks is that due to general relativity, they run at a slightly different speed than clocks on Earth. And after a while, that starts to cause your locating system, if it's not accounted for, to become inaccurate. GPS needs clocks that are this accurate because otherwise it literally will not work. Yeah, if you had like your regular digital watch clock on there very quickly, your position on Google Maps would start drifting away from where it actually is. <laughs> we're in this stage now with quantum physics where we're starting to develop quantum technologies. So technologies that we could only design because we know how they work. And so that's kind of where a lot of research efforts are focused at the moment. It's finding new ways to solve problems using quantum systems as opposed to classical physical systems. How does what you're working on fit into that? It's a little bit complicated to explain, um, but essentially we can have a diamond which has 
lots and lots and lots of nitrogen vacancy centers in it. And the way they work, I kind of said before that they're kind of like an atom that you can kind of pick up and move around, which has nice energy levels. And so we kind of know that atoms have electrons around them and that those electrons can go to different like excited states or their ground state and they have different energy levels and that when they move between those they either like absorb a photon or emit a photon. Well could we take a moment to insert a very brief sort of reminder of what excited ground photon mean for people who don't who maybe don't know? So photons are little packets of electromagnetic energy and electromagnetic energy can be created by moving around something with an electric charge so if you shake an electron which is negatively charged then you're kind of sending ripples out in this kind of like electromagnetic field whenever you move something which has a charge ripples of electromagnetic energy go out And so this happens on very big scales and it happens on really small scales as well. So when you have an electron going around an atom and it moves up, then it has to be interacting with the electromagnetic field to be able to move. Or if it moves, then the electromagnetic field has to change in response to it and it has to send out those ripples. And so the excited states and the ground state are just describing how close the electron can get to the atom. Like positive and negative charges are attracted to one another and the nucleus of an atom is positively charged and the electron is negatively charged, then the electron wants to be as close to the atom as possible. And that's its ground state. It's kind of like attracted there. It's like two magnets pulling together. But if you put some electromagnetic energy into the electron, then suddenly it has a bit of energy to get further away. And so it can jump up to one of the excited states because it's absorbed a little bit of energy and now it can push away more. And then the same kind of thing if it gets, oh, well, now I don't have enough energy, I'm going to like magnetically attract back to the ground state, then it's going to re-emit that energy as a photon. And yeah, so we've got a whole bunch of these which basically act like that. They've got excited states and ground states. And anything which is in an excited state is at some point going to want to decay back to its ground state. What we can do is by one of the energy levels, the kinds of photons that it emits when it decays back to its ground state are microwave photons. What we do is we basically, by manipulating the NV centers with kind of like magnetic fields and lasers to illuminate it and kind of manipulate it all in a particular way, we can basically make it so that it's emitting microwave photons and building up like a population of microwave photons in something we call like a resonator. And this would be kind of like if you imagine you had two mirrors facing one another and then you're just going to have light bouncing back and forth in between those two mirrors and it's going to like grow up in intensity if you've got like a laser with like two mirrors on either side. Well, and to be clear, microwave here microwave here refers to like the range of like wavelengths. Yeah, exactly. So uh, microwave radiation has wavelengths of like, a, I don't know, between millimeters and centimeters. So for example, visible light is kind of like hundreds of nanometers. And like one nanometer is kind of like the, the way I always come back to explaining it is one nanometer is how far your fingernails grow in one second. So every second your fingernails will grow by one nanometer. And so 
that's kind of that's the tininess of the length scale that we're looking at. <laughs> how well? How did a physicist figure that out just for fun, or how did we get to that statistic? So it's just kind of like a pretty basic kind of measurement thing. Like if you just, I don't know, if you want to take a week and say. Um, well, this is how far they grew in a week. They've probably grown enough that you can measure that fairly easily. And so you'll just kind of say, well, how many seconds are there in a week? And then I'm just going to divide the amount that it grew in a week by how many seconds there are in a week. And that's kind of how long it grows each second. (laughs) And people think that funding for science is misappropriated. (laughs) (laughs) It isn't. Just let's all be serious for a second. Give more money to scientists. Yeah, so so basically, these kind of lasers, but made with microwave photons, uh, that's what's used for uh, these GPS satellites for their clocks, something called a maser, which is kind of like a microwave laser. And we've kind of had these things called hydrogen masers for like 40, 50 years now. Um, and that's what's used in all these GPS satellites, but they're really big, and they're really bulky and expensive. And so we can make something like that, but it's solid state. It's a lot less, like, it's a lot more robust mechanically because it's just made out of diamond. And so the hope is that we can build mazes and have that be a kind of like new technology, which is available, which is also going to be, it's incredibly accurate the same way that like the stuff in GPS satellites is, but it's going to be accessible to a lot more people. And so you can use it as clocks, but because it relies on magnetic fields, that means that if your magnetic field changes, then the power coming out of your maser changes. So you can use it to detect changes in magnetic fields. And so that's what we're really doing. We're trying to develop this technology and kind of develop the sophistication and our understanding of it to the point that we'll be able to make things with this that we can then like, we'll be able to improve the kinds of things that people can build. So hypothetically, what would be the optimal result or the result you'd be most excited to see come out of your research? Yeah, so I I think really the thing we would love to be able to get to is having one of these maser systems built on like a microchip. And at the moment, that's kind of like a little bit far-fetched because of the, the components of the system have to be designed in a very particular way. And a lot of them can't be made really, really small. They can be made a lot smaller than what's there at the moment, but none of them are really the kinds of things that you can just put on a chip and be done with it. But there's not necessarily anything theoretically standing in the way of making these things so that they can be put on just like a little microchip and be on a circuit board inside something larger. What we would love to see at the end of all of this is being able to design an on-chip, high-accuracy maser which we can use as a high accuracy clock which would match the standards of things found in gps satellites because if we could do that it would be something that can be mass manufactured incredibly cheaply it would open the doors for a whole lot of stuff for a whole lot of different industries because these high accuracy clocks they're not just useful for gps satellites they're useful for a lot of other lab work in physics having a really accurate clock that you can measure time with helps you explore a lot of different things in a lot of different ways so speaking about manufacturing objects, are the diamonds you're using naturally occurring or are these manufactured diamonds? Uh, so the ones we're using at the moment are manufactured, but you can also get natural diamonds with nitrogen vacancy centers in them. These kind of like defect centers, you can have all different kinds of things. You can have different atoms replacing 
the carbon atoms in the diamond. Defect centers are what make different colored diamonds have that particular color. So like nitrogen vacancy centers, if you have the right concentration, they make a pink diamond. But if you have too many, then it turns kind of like a blacky red color. Um, and you can have different defect centers, which make them like green, for instance. When research was first being done with nitrogen vacancy centers, it was being done all with uh, natural diamonds because it's only in the last decade or two that we've really been able to start manufacturing them properly. And so that's one of the things which is allowing this kind of research to take place is there is there is a ready supply of lab-grade diamonds where we very, very, we understand very well the properties of these diamonds because we've been able to manufacture them from the raw atoms and we know exactly what's in them, we know the concentrations and we know how it all works. Why nitrogen specifically? Could you give like specific examples of of like, what are the properties of nitrogen that make it a good choice for what you're doing with it? Yeah, so it's it's mainly to do with the amount of electrons which are free for being able to bond. So we know that, like, a lot of chemical bonds come from just electrons being shared between two atoms, and then that ties those atoms together. And there are some number of electrons which are available to bond with other atoms, the reason that diamond is such a strong, hard material is because once those bonds have been formed, there are no electrons left over, and there's no places where it's possible for extra electrons to be to increase the strength of those bonds. And so that's kind of like the, the electrons which are available to form chemical bonds are called the valence electrons. Why we like nitrogen so much is basically that it has the right amount of valence electrons that gives a particular electronic structure to the nitrogen vacancy center that we want. Mm. So the properties of the nitrogen vacancy center, which are really important, is the fact that it's got an excited state and a ground state. But within the ground state, there's kind of like something which we call the fine structure, which is really, really tiny energy levels within the ground state and within the excited state. And so it's that structure which is allowed by the number of electrons that the, that the nitrogen has. So because it has like five valence electrons, uh, a couple of those get used up bonding to the carbon atoms, and then a couple of those are left hanging around in the hole where there should be the vacancy of the nitrogen vacancy. And so the number of electrons that are left over after it's bonded to the carbon means that it has this ground state and this excited state, but it also has this ground and excited state within each of those, this fine structure. And it's that fine structure which is actually what has the microwave radiation associated with it. We like we have to have two free electrons and they have to be in a particular configuration in a particular place. And the nitrogen is the atom on the periodic table, which has the right amount of valence electrons that lets us do that with them. Do you have anything else that you would like to specifically talk about? I did kind of want to talk a bit about kind of like quantum computing, because that is the kind of thing that people know most about or like have heard most about and know nothing about really in act, like in reality. Um, and, and it's, I guess like a kind of like a thing that I keep finding myself coming back to is feeling upset at the reputation that quantum in particular has and how 
intimidated people feel by it and the kind of the way that certain shitty guys within the field like that reputation because it makes them feel important and superior to other people, which just grinds my gears horribly. (laughs) To give people a bit of a better understanding about like kind of what quantum computing is and why it's so exciting, the best way to kind of like convey to people the kind of the changes between this and regular computing is if you think about a normal computer, you have a certain amount of bits associated with it. Like everything is just zeros or ones. And we talk about how many parameters do we need to describe the state of a regular computer? Well, you just need however many zeros and ones the computer is using to do its stuff. If the computer has this many bits, then you just need that many numbers. You just need that many zero or ones to describe it. But the way quantum physics works is very different from that. Um, Whenever you have two quantum systems interacting with each other, the number of parameters that you need to describe them grow, uh, not ex- uh, yeah, grow exponentially. So, if you have an atom and it has a ground state and an excited state, uh, then you only need kind of like two things to describe it. It's just a zero or a one. But if you add another like atom to that, and now you've got two things which can either be zero or one. Uh, it, you you don't just need two parameters to describe that because they can become entangled. And entanglement is one of the kind of like big things in quantum physics. But what this means is that for two atoms that are interacting, you now need four parameters to describe their state. And if you have three, then you multiply that by two again. So you've got eight parameters that you need to describe it. And so that pattern kind of grows. It's like two to the power of however many atoms you have. And so when you get up to like seven, eight, even just like 10 atoms that might be interacting with one another, then suddenly you have like hundreds and thousands of parameters that you need to describe these systems. And quantum computing has the potential to be so powerful because we can do calculations in the size of that parameter space. So like we have like 10, 15, like, things which are interacting with one another, but then the mathematics that we need to describe that has, like, hundreds of different things that we can play with, and we can manipulate all of those and do calculations using all of those. And so the kind of, the the best kind of example that I always come back to is people talk a lot about how quantum computers can break encryption that we rely on, and so a lot of encryption standards basically rely on We've got some function which is so complicated that we can never figure out what the input was based on a given output. Um, And so we just have to guess. And this is the only way of breaking encryption is you just have to guess over and over and over again until you eventually get the right answer. And that's just, it takes a lot of time to do that. But quantum computers, you can basically calculate the output of all possible numbers at once and then just pick out the right one at the end. Because that's, the size of that space is so big, we can just create this state, which is kind of like an entangled state of all possible numbers at the same time, and then just do the calculation once. So like it, it's that's kind of like on a very kind of like bare bones level, what kind of like the, the potential power of quantum computing is. It's just that 
we've got this mathematical space to play with that grows so, so, so quickly. And that gives us a lot of power and a lot of freedom to be able to do different things that weren't possible before. Thinking about that, going from a description of what is to speculation of what may be, how do you imagine this might be used in the future? And you can be as grounded or as bonkers off the wall speculatively speculative as you would like it's easy to get carried away with imagining how things might be it's especially when there's such like recent comparisons with like classical computing and where we were like i don't know in in the 40s and 50s and the very first computers you think of them like being done with like punch cards and entire buildings filled with just reels of tape or whatever other kind of computing thing you're doing and it's kind of like that's where we are with quantum computing at the moment. It's kind of like we've got these very, very rudimentary machines which can do some stuff, but they're they're so far away from being able to do anything useful. The same the same way computers back then were so far away from being useful. And so at the moment, we we still don't even really have like a a settled idea about what the best way to build a quantum computer is. With classical computers, it took a while to figure out what's the best way to build memory. Is it kind of like magnetic tape or is it kind of like an actual magnetism, like the magnetization of like a particular thing? There were all these questions that we had to solve and that's where we are at the moment. It would be nice to think that someday in the future we're going to have be able to build quantum computers which don't rely on having like a ready supply of liquid nitrogen and liquid helium to cool everything down and that we might be able to miniaturize this a bit and we'll be able to solve the problems of how it scales and then with that kind of you can kind of imagine that we will be able to have some kind of common usage that exploits the powers of quantum computing to do things the way that computers do for us today. Um, and that might happen, but it might not happen, and it might remain the kind of thing that universities will use quantum computers and places like Google might have them to be able to do particular kinds of research. And that's kind of like a lot more realistic in the near term. Um, but it's really a bit early to say. So Okay, so I, in an attempt to, to put it maybe as simply as possible, well, what is computing for? Computing is for on a very basic level, just doing lots of maths very quickly. And by doing lots of maths very quickly, we can display stuff, we can render things, we can record things. And But on a f- fundamental level, most of that is just kind of like mathematical operations. And so quantum computing is just kind of like increasing the range of different things that on a base level we can do. And it, it seems like it's also connected to how much you can do overall, as well as using space more efficiently where like a lot of the advancements in computing that we have from the early building size computers to today where i have a phone that has more like computing power in it than a building did 60 years ago yeah Um, it's it's making things on a smaller scale so that they can both do more overall as well as do more with less. Yeah, and that's exactly it. That's that's behind most of the problems that quantum computing is trying to solve at the moment is to do with the size, but perhaps more than the size, it's how you scale these systems. So mm. we can build a quantum computer at the moment that is this particular size, but 
it's not necessarily a, an easy way to add more qubits into this system. There comes a point where you've got so much control stuff around it that there literally isn't any more space on your like chip to be able to add any more in. And then we don't know how we connect these two together. So like even if you had two of those systems sitting next to each other, we don't necessarily know how we would make them talk to each other so that they can work together on a problem. Hmm. So yeah, a lot of it is about miniaturization and being able to make these systems smaller, but as well as making them smaller, the particular problem with quantum computers is how do we get them to talk to each other in a way that allows them to combine their powers? And sort of what is it precisely about quantum physics and quantum computers that opens up this potential for improving things in this way? Like I was saying before, it's really just the size of that mathematical space that you're using to do your calculations. And the entanglement of these quantum systems allows you to do stuff by making a state which is all possible combinations of a number at the same time. And, and that kind of thing is where quantum computers really excel. And, and also being able to directly simulate like complicated systems. So at the moment, like we can... We can describe a hydrogen atom really well, but the underlying physics gets really complicated as soon as you start trying to like simulate like from first principles any other like atoms in the periodic table. Uh, but because of the size of kind of quantum computers and how they work, it's actually really easy to be able to map the parameters you want to simulate of anything on the periodic table directly onto how a quantum computer works and be able to directly simulate something like that and then get perfectly analytical results afterwards, which is not something we have any way of doing at the moment. And so that's one of the big applications is being able to simulate kind of like chemical reactions from first principles, from like the very basic quantum physics rules of how things work. We can potentially simulate like chemical reactions between different molecules and atoms. We can go to the final section of our podcast where we ask our guests uh, to weigh in on one of our science fictional hypotheticals. I did just send you this list. Is there one or multiples that you would particularly like to answer? I mean, it's hard for me to go past the classic robot body one. <laughs> I, it's, I mean, it is a classic. So if you were about to die, would you put your brain in a robot body? I, I think I would. I think I have a couple of reservations about the kind of capabilities of this robot body. Like, wh what kind of robot are we talking about? But I, I don't necessarily know that I would even want to wait until I'm dying if it was the right kind of robot. It just seems like a win-win to me. I don't know. I, I feel especially as kind of like a trans person, there's a lot of there's a lot of potential for exploring the bounds of kind of like what a person can be and what kind of things are fulfilling and meaningful when you have complete control over something like that. And like it's been a common theme in science fiction is the ways that we can like use kind of like cyborgs or robots and that kind of thing to explore, explore themes of kind of oppression, but also freedom from those kind of structures and what that allows people to do. If our world can one day get to the point where robot bodies are an option, I would be very, very happy. I mean, then the inevitable following questions is what, what would be your standard for an acceptable robot body? I think a lot of it would come down to mimicking some aspects of what it is to live as a person. So having like sufficient kind of like sensory ability 
and also just the the kind of like freedom which comes with a human body being able to travel where you want. I, I, I think a lot of it is to do with just kind of being allowed bodily autonomy by whatever robot body that you're inside and being able to interact with the world in a full and complete way. I think you're actually the first person who has said, not even just on my deathbed, but just just preemptively like proactively let's go robot body which is very interesting because i'm with you i love the idea of being in a robot body although when it comes down to it like would i actually put myself in a robot body i'm a very cautious person and i feel like there are probably a lot of unknowns in that situation that might make me a little bit squeamish about it at the very least i would love to have like a robotic exoskeleton with mm. at least one extra arm. Because I'm always thinking it would be great to have three arms. It would make things so much easier. It would be really convenient. It would make finding good clothes a bit more difficult, though. <laughs> yes, although as a trans person, I feel like you probably already feel like finding... I'm trans to trans. Finding clothes is already pretty difficult. Yeah, no, it, it definitely can be. I feel uh, lucky that I found that there's one place in Australia where I can reliably get nice clothes, and that is uh, something I'm very happy about consistently. Well, because the other thing is, depending on how realistic your robot, like if you're going like data realism, probably nudity is a no go. If you're going like, I'm not proud of it, but the first image that comes to my mind is the Will Smith movie iRobot, where they're humanoid. Right. But they, mm. they, well, first of all, they don't have genitals. And then secondly, they're sort of abstracted enough that they don't even look naked. Mm. I think in that case, you don't, you don't even need clothes. No, you don't necessarily need clothes. But I think key to that would be being able to modify kind of like whatever you're like, I don't know, paint a different colors, change the design, swap on some different parts. Hey, aesthetics, you know? Yeah. You need to be able to express yourself through your presentation. Like I think the, f- the final sort of, common recurring idea with the robot bodies is basically when do you get to die you know what i mean like would you Mm. want to be permanently in your robot body i'm going forever because we had one person previously who was like i'm gonna get myself into like a horrible long furby freak some people out and then say goodbye yeah i don't know that that's always seemed like such a complicated kind of question and something which is explored really often whenever you have some kind of like science fiction where people are allowed the ability to live forever and the kind of injustices that come with that and the kind of the way that exacerbates class systems and oh you're always going to have it so the rich people get to live forever and no one else does yeah i i I think ideally there would be some kind of uh, world where if we've developed that we're not going to have the same problems we have at the moment and we're maybe in more some kind of like star trek utopian thing where we don't have to worry about those kind of things anymore i think ultimately though my i wouldn't want to be forced to be in there forever i kind of i don't know if you guys watched the good place but spoilers for yeah the i was end just of thinking that. of that I, I i i i adore that idea of what a perfect life would be and the way that it would end is that maybe not forever but you are afforded the time to explore your relationships and have the time that you need with people and truly find yourself and explore all the things you want to and then when it's time to move on then you can move on 
I recently reread the two Lock Tomb books that have already been published and thinking about sort of resurrection and bringing people back from the dead that it's just been on my mind and thinking about it I love my cat and I keep thinking about like because you might have noticed also on our list of episode enders is like uh would you clone a loved one right yeah and I think like, would I want to clone Hank, my cat? No, because it wouldn't be the same cat. Would mm. I then, if he died, resurrect him? And I get back to, I feel like ultimately that would be very selfish because, you know, once he's lived a good long life, I think we all have the right to die, you know? Like, at a certain mm. point, it's not nice to keep on going. It's like, I'm tired. I'd, no. I'd like to just die now, please. <laughs> It's definitely something which would require consent. Yeah. And unfortunately, he's a cat. And um, yeah. I don't think understands mortality. <laughs> I don't know. Because, like, you know, he's a cat. But probably, I don't think he does. What a blessed life to not have to contemplate that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly. There, there's a book I read recently called Unity by a really fantastic trans author. Uh, Ellie Banks, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's kind of like... I don't know. I, I, I don't want to spoil too much about it, but the, the way it explores living a prolonged life, and it's not necessarily immortality, though it's very close to that in that book, but I feel like so much of the kinds of stories that we see about immortality and how it's a curse just as much as it is a blessing, so much of it focuses on the kind of the individual experience and watching people you love pass away and things repeating themselves where it feels like there would be so much more agency to be able to affect meaningful change in the world if you have had that kind of experience and that knowledge and it feels like there is so much that could be explored when you think about the kinds of good someone could do You've you've been a tremendous guest. It's been great having you on. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Absolutely. If people would like to find out more about you or your work, uh, where should they look? If you want to find more about my research, there's the Engineered Quantum Systems website, which is the research center I'm a part of. Um, and I have a page on there and there's some information there about the kinds of work and research that we're involved with. And then also Macquarie University is the university I'm at. And there's information out there about the kinds of research we do there. Tremendous. If you want to follow me, I am on Twitter at Cockroach. Arles. I am on Twitter at SpacerMase, S-P-A-C-E-E-R-M-A-S-E. I can also be found on my website, TessaFisher.com. The show is on Twitter at ASABpod or at our website where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode, ASABpodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, if you think other people might like the podcast, please tell people about it. Word of mouth is the primary way that podcasts grow. And until next time, keep on sciencing. <laughs>